Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Steve Goldfeder and Ed Felton, who together along with other colleagues at Offchain Labs, started the Arbitrum project back in Princeton, where Steve was a PhD student and Ed is a professor of computer science. Many of you tuning in are probably thinking, layer twos, rollups, I've barely figured out ETH 2.0. In what ways can rollups bring massive improvement to Ethereum? Well, remember during the last DeFi summer, the talk of town was about the Ethereum killers, the competitor layer one blockchains that were supposed to topple Ethereum. Nearly a year later, Ethereum still remains the dominant blockchain on top of which a thriving DeFi ecosystem is growing. So how do we improve the base layer to support increasing economic activity at scale with low transaction costs? This is where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two protocol that makes smart contracts scalable, fast, and private. Why should it matter to you? Because once projects deploy onto Arbitrum, it can really make your DeFi experience a whole lot cheaper. I, for one, would love to pay less gas fees. This episode is packed with new information and hopefully is a digestible conversation for the non-technical enthusiast tuning in. Thanks everyone for being here, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And Ed, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, well, it's almost been two weeks since the launch of Arbitrum on your mainnet. How are you both feeling? I'm feeling, you know, feeling pretty good. I think that was a very big step for us and we're really excited and things are going really, really well. But uh, our work is not done. You know, we're working to onboard lots of projects and make sure making uh you know, Ethereum, uh, cheap transactions on Ethereum, keeping them secure, cost effective. And, you know, we have a lot of work ahead of us as well. But, uh, you know, I think we're feeling pretty good with the launch and how it's going so far. I'd say I'm feeling great about it. You know, whenever you launch a new thing, there's always a little bit of a fingers crossed moment. You know, we'd done all the diligence we thought we needed to do, and uh, it turned out the way we expected to. So, you know, I'm feeling really good. The system is running the way it's supposed to, and applications are coming on board smoothly. That's the best go-to-market story you can have, right? That things aren't breaking as you're deploying. Well, both of you have really deep roots in academia. Uh, in fact, Arbitrum started off as an academic research paper or a project. Steve, you received your PhD from Princeton and Ed, you were and are a professor of computer science at Princeton, who's currently on leave. But maybe Steve, you can start off by talking about your collaboration story with Ed and sort of the founding of Arbitrum from academia. Yeah, definitely. So as you said, uh, I have my PhD from Princeton and Princeton was actually really one of the earliest universities to get into the blockchain space. And it was Ed and uh, another professor there who was my advisor, Arvind Ryanon, who were uh, very active in the space and were responsible for uh, really getting me into the space as well. And the story goes with Arbitrum that... Um, Basically, this was something that Ed had worked on for years before I was involved with. Ed had led an undergraduate class project on Arbitrum, or I'll call it proto-Arbitrum, ideas that are, you know, share, share something very similar to our 
spectrum and sure they're actually most of the core but obviously the system has come a very long way since and this was before I was in, I was involved and uh, then Ed went off to the White House and was uh, well I'll let Ed tell you about that because he'll tell you he'll tell you better do a better job at that but uh, from my perspective at some point Ed came back and uh, and uh, and Harry my other co-founder and I ambushed Ed at his office and said hey Ed that Arbitrum thing that you're uh, working on like we, we we need to pick that up because you know it was like at that time, like scaling was hot, like CryptoKitties was huge. And like, we thought, oh, this is it. And obviously looking back, uh, the blip that we were seeing then was nothing like what we're seeing today. But looking at the timeline, Ed was actually thinking about Arbitrum before Ethereum was live. That class that I mentioned, you can look at the, the video on YouTube that predates uh, Ethereum. And again, you know, it was really, it was really, you know, the credit goes to Ed who had the really, really early, early vision here. Uh, when, when I when I came to vi Princeton on my visit days, this was before I knew Ed. They had like a faculty rapid session. Every, you know, every faculty member discussing what they're doing, and Ed talked about his work on. I remember this still. I don't even know if Ed remembers this, but Ed talked about his work on Bitcoin and the uh, Goldfinger attack, which uh, was was some of Ed's early work there. And, and actually, I at that point said. Hey, what's what's Bitcoin? And then that night, uh, the security group played poker with, with for Bitcoin. And I'm like, what is this thing? And uh, the rest was history. <laughs> did you win Bitcoin that night from the poker game? I don't think so. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> we were playing for low stakes, like, you know, one or two Bitcoins. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So for me, you know, as Stephen said, this kind of goes back to 2014 or so. So I was doing blockchain cryptocurrency research back then, and I got really excited about smart contracts um, back then, even when they were sort of more an idea than actually something that had actually been built. But you could see that this was going to be a huge, uh, this, this was going to be an incredibly powerful primitive that people could build all kinds of amazing things on, but also that there were going to be scaling problems. And so the initial Arbitrum project was, was really around the idea that, uh, of trying to scale smart contracts. Um, and so I'd worked out kind of the basics of how it would work. And then these students came in and they were working as a class project to sort of build around this vision. Um, so then, yeah, as Steven said, um, uh, I took a detour. I went off and worked at the White House for almost two years as a senior advisor to President Obama. Um, and then when I came back, one day, these two grad students walked into my office, and uh, the rest is the rest is history, right? So from that time, we uh, you know we worked to first publish an academic paper on on sort of a more advanced version of Arbitrum in summer 2018, and then founded the company. And ever since then, we've worked to turn this into a product that really works for people, right? From academic idea to something that can run real code of real applications um, on Ethereum mainnet, yeah. Right, right. Well, it's super interesting that you worked for a bit of time um, at the White House. Was there a secret task force looking at blockchain at that time or looking at how to apply blockchain to sort of real world use cases? I wouldn't say there was a secret task force, but there were certainly discussions. There were meetings about it. There were big memos circulated. And, you know, different parts of the government had different views about this. Right. There are parts of the U.S. government that are all about money laundering and fighting international organized crime. And they have one view. There are parts that are about financial inclusion and making the economy function efficiently. There are parts that are about consumer protection. Part of, one of the really interesting things for me when I was in that role was to bring together people from different parts of the government who have these different see these different views of the tech. Overall, the uh, you know, the attitude was this is a really interesting thing. And um, there's a lot of amazing innovation that's going to happen. And 
government was watching it carefully, but also trying not to step on it, trying not to hem it in and trying to, when there were misuses, to attack the misuse rather than to attack the technology. I feel like that theme plays out or is playing out even more so in crypto today, this perhaps tension between the community and, you know, regulatory bodies, right? It's us versus the government. In reality, I think the relationship is much more nuanced, right? You look at a state like like Wisconsin, which has passed multiple blockchain bills and really kind of championed, right, use cases such as DAOs, for example. And that's not something that is talked about really on the mainstream. I think that's right. And I think you get I think when you have forward-thinking people in government and you have forward-thinking people in industry, the way things tend to go is that you get some degree of regulation around consumer protection because the people who are running honest businesses um, want to clear away scammers, right? Scammers make it harder for everyone to for all, everyone who's doing honest business to succeed. Um, and so, um, and at the same time, government wants to be able to um, to satisfy its mission of protecting the public against true scams. Uh, and so you often do get when when you can get people in a room and people are being reasonable and, and forward looking and willing to listen to different perspectives, you get this approach that is sort of steering toward a robust and innovative, but also responsible way of doing business. So I, I really saw people trying to do that mostly in government. Um, and I think that's the right path for folks in industry as well. Yeah, so I thought today would be really fun to walk through a series that I got inspired by from Wired, who's done this five-level series where an expert tries to explain a high-level subject to basically five different types of complexities. Uh, On the first level, it is explaining it to a child, then to a teenager, an undergrad, a grad student, and finally, a colleague. I thought for today, for sake of time, we can keep it to three levels, a child, undergrad, and fellow PhD expert or colleague, and try to explain Arbitrum to these different levels. So who would like to try level one, explain it like I'm five? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. I have two kids myself, not quite five-year-olds uh, yet, but um, I, will, I will do my best to, to do something that they might understand. What Ethereum is, it's a way for people to coordinate and, and interact with each other and um, you know, do business with each other or, or uh, whatever, whatever they want, send each other money, send each other uh, assets, trade. And um, on Ethereum, basically, you can think of that there's, um, everything, is, everything is directly validated by Ethereum, right? So what that means is that everything goes on, goes on, on the blockchain and, and the Ethereum miners actually run it. You and I, you can play games on Ethereum. If you and I are playing chess on Ethereum, every miner is validating every move on, on our chess. And what layer two systems uh, like Arbitrum do is they say, hey, um, you know, if we're playing uh, this game, uh, say, and everything's going well, why do we need them to enforce every move? Um, instead, why don't we just have a system where uh, we do things off chain and the resources are much less, and we only uh, fall back to on-chain. We only fall back to those resources when there's a dispute. And uh, you know, in, in, in real five-year-old terms, this would be the idea of like, hey, uh, there are a bunch of rules in the classroom, and but the teacher doesn't need to sit there and enforce every rule and remind you every second and watch you every second, but there's a system in place. You can go ahead and play. And hey, if one kid you know, does sign to the other, if one kid hits or st- grabs a toy, then they go to the teacher and the teacher now has the resources to resolve that dispute. So um, 
yeah, I don't know if that's uh, helpful, but that's, that's, that would be my first take on a real ELI thought. <laughs> All right, next level, this would be talking to an undergrad student. Um, let's assume that they have a computer science degree, are interested in similar fields as you both. Okay, I'll take this one because I've actually taught this. Yeah, what I would say is first, you start with the idea of smart contracts, right? And Ethereum as, a, as the most common platform for that. And then I say, well, look, this system has the one of the biggest issues with this system is is its capacity that every miner every ethereum miner has to execute every step of every smart contract and that means that the capacity of the system is really limited and that means that limits what it can do and it also means that people have to pay a lot to get space on there so what we want to do is figure out a way and what what um arbitrum does is figure out a way to take the execution and the storage of those smart contracts and not make every miner execute them. So instead, what we do is we move that off onto a separate chain, the execution and the storage. And then we have a, a protocol, a, a way that all the parties who are involved in that chain can interact, which guarantees to give you the same result as if you executed these things on Ethereum, but with a much smaller footprint or impact on the Ethereum chain. So a way to think about it is basically that you have all of these parties who are operating this layer two chain, and then you have a referee. And the referee has all the power, but the, but the game is played by the players, right? And so the referee is sits on Ethereum and is an Ethereum contract, but the players resolve what happens off chain. And so the result is almost all of the work is moved off of the, the core Ethereum chain, but what you have is something which is compatible with Ethereum, but also has the security of Ethereum because the referee is backed by Ethereum. So I'd, I'd sort of use that analogy to talk about what it's trying to do, sort of at the undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. All right. And for the final level, to a graduate fellow, student, yes, all right. graduate student level. I've taught that too. <laughs> um, so with the graduate student, I'm talking about how this actually works. Now, how is it that we can move this stuff off chain and still have the security as if it were on chain? Um, and the key ideas are really two things. Thing one is that when people submit transactions to this system, they all get batched together into big batches and those batches are recorded on the, L1, on the Ethereum chain as what's called call data, which is a way that you can kind of post data in a, uh, sort of ephemeral way on the Ethereum chain, if you want. So that's how everybody knows what's happening on the Arbitrum chain. And then the other question is, first, the first one is how does everyone know what's happening? And the second one is, um, the second question is, how do you make sure that what happens on this chain is correct? And the basic idea there is that anyone can make a claim about what the chain will do, what is the correct outcome of the transactions that have been submitted, um, and back that with the stake. And then if, if, no one if no one disagrees for a period of time, which is like a week on, main on mainnet, then that'll get accepted and, and you go on. But if somebody disagrees, they can put down their own stake and say, no, I think the result is this other thing. And then you have this uh, efficient protocol, a sort of uh, contest between these two parties who disagree about what the right outcome is, that is refereed by uh, by an Ethereum contract, right? And so in this 
And this gets to the bottom of who's actually telling the truth. Mm. This protocol and, you know, go read our paper. I'll assign it to you since you're a grad student. Um, and uh, it explains how it is that we can guarantee that a party who's lying of when they put down their stake will always lose and therefore their stake will get taken, right? So this guarantees that you get the right answer because the party who's right will win, will win the challenge. And also, but also that there's a disincentive to, to lie because if you lie, you're going to lose a challenge, you'll lose your stake, mm -hmm. right? And so you get correctness because you figure out who's right and you get efficiency because you severely punish people who, who lie, right? And so in the normal case, you have people telling the truth, everything runs smoothly and fast. Um, if in the other case, if someone is lying, then it's a little bit more expensive to resolve that. But of course the liars pay, so we don't mind. And so you move almost all of the burden of running Ethereum smart contracts off of the Ethereum chain. And that's how you get a chain that can operate much faster and much cheaper. And then there's a whole there's a whole body of stuff which we can talk which we'll talk about in the next lecture, <laughs> um, which is uh, how we make it uh, highly compatible with Ethereum. Welcome to class number one <laughs> for Arbitrum. Yeah. Now you touched on a lot of important points, and I think this segues nicely into us talking about uh, one of the most important questions top of mind for the crypto community, which is why is scaling smart contracts so difficult? And I'm taking this headline from one of the papers that you guys wrote together. You know, solving for scalability is such an important problem because now, right, the question is, how do we upgrade the economic bandwidth of the Ethereum chain to support all of the you know, activity that's happening on the platform, right? As we get into the bull market, as more people find out and want to participate in things like decentralized finance, we're realizing no better time than now to fix the scalability problem. Let's dive in deeper and talk about what are all the ways that Arbitrum is scaling Ethereum to minimize the frictions that we as traders or liquidity providers, whatever, in the space feel on Ethereum today? There's a few ways of looking at what are the bottlenecks in Ethereum that are limiting its performance, right? And those all manifest through the gas limit, right? There's a gas, there's a limit on Ethereum gas per, per block or per second, if you like. And uh, all the activity that can be allowed to happen on Ethereum has to fit inside of that. And if the demand for space in those blocks is more than that capacity, which it is every single day, then you have to bid for space, right? And gas fees are basically the price you have to pay in this sort of auction to get space, right? And so the cost and the limited capacity go hand in hand because of the economics that you auction the capacity that exists, right? So why is that low? Um, and the answer really is that is the need to be able to fit it's a few things. It's partly the need to be able to fit every single thing that happens on Ethereum onto the computer of any user, right? So part of the beauty of Ethereum is this idea that anybody can operate a node. And that means that you know, your laptop, whoever you are, should be able to actually operate a node. And so it needs to be possible for your node to be able to do that, for, for an ordinary machine to be able to do that. Um, and so right there, you already can't run faster 
than you know some random person's laptop. And everyone in the world has to share that. The other piece of this is that because smart contracts are general purpose computer programs, that means that every step has to be right in order to get the right answer at the end. And the steps happen in sequence. Um, and so that means that every node has to do every step of every smart contract and it has to do them one at a time, right? And so that limits how much, how many steps of computation can happen on the chain. There's limits on storage because all these nodes need to store all the data of all the contracts. Um, there's limits, uh, limits on how much data the chain can take because they need to be able to download the chain. So all these things put hard limits, right? And those limits are just, those limits would be fine if we were sort of back in the years ago state where hardly anybody used Ethereum, there wasn't much uh, economic activity going on there. But as soon as you get real people in larger numbers running interesting applications with real money, then there's just this desire to make that capacity bigger, right? And so it's as if like Amazon say, or Microsoft or Google has these web services products right, where they have elastic scaling and anybody can scale up their application to like thousands of, of servers if you need to, right? But imagine that like Amazon Web Services had only one computer <laughs> and like everyone had to share it in the world, every service, every application, right? Um, that's kind of where we have been with Ethereum, right? Everyone needs to share this one kind of virtual computer, which is the Ethereum virtual machine. Mm. Um, and the question is, and so there's this dire need for scaling. Um, and high costs because of it, right? And so this is what kind of, this is kind of the world that, you know, I was thinking about and, 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 and you know, our research team was thinking about back in 2014 and 15, we could see this, that this was the future we were gonna be in. And, um, you know, started thinking about how can you, how can you do better? And one of the things you can do is you can take some of that activity off to the side and have, anyone who wants to participate in uh, agreement about what the result will be. And then only if there's a dispute, bring it back to mainnet, which is the really scarce and precious resource, right? And because you get agreement most of the time, because that's the economic incentive in this off-chain way, then you can get a lot more capacity, right? It's all about reducing how big is your footprint on the mainnet. You need to anchor in mainnet for security, mm. but you want to make... The, your contact with mainnet as small as possible, consistent with maintaining security. And so, you know, so we sat down with Stephen and Harry and some other, the, the other, our third co-founder and others, you know, and opened up a big can of computer science on this problem um, to try to figure out what we could do with all the tools of computer science to try to make a system that was as secure as Ethereum, but had the smallest possible footprint on, on mainnet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Stephen, this isn't just an Ethereum problem, though, right? You guys aren't just doing this for all the activity on Ethereum. The idea is that you are blockchain agnostic, right? You're, you hope to pivot uh, to support as many blockchains as possible because scalability isn't only an Ethereum issue, right? You guys were thinking about this before the deployment of Ethereum, you know, back when Bitcoin was the dominant blockchain. So what is the thinking there, right? I'm sure lots of people are, 
are wondering, given that there's a battle of blockchains? It's a great question. And I think, um, you know, we've obviously uh, changed over time in this, you know, the, the project predates Ethereum. So certainly this wasn't at a point in the Ethereum project. Uh, in the academic paper, like you mentioned, you know, we use this term, it's a blockchain agnostic, which is in an academic paper, that's nice, because it just means you plug something in, it's pluggable, we sit on top of something, and it has to have these basic things. But when you build, when you build a product, when you, we actually turn the academic paper into a company, we had to actually figure out you know, these terms that sound nice in an academic paper, like we're blockchain agnostic, don't mean as much. Um, and, and you know, you have, what are you building? Who are you building for? And it was clear to us very, very early on uh, when we, you know, in the company days and even earlier that Ethereum was the hub of developer activity and interest and, and, and really what we wanted to focus on, the problem that we wanted to scale. So um, the technology is absolutely blockchain agnostic and, it, and, and we can support any blockchain, but as a company right now, we're like 1000% focused on, on scaling Ethereum. Um, that is like our, our, full, our full focus. You know, we do get reach out from others as well. I'm not going to say, you know, we'll ne you'll never see arbitrage technology deployed anywhere else, but, but right now, you know, the, the, you know, our focus is, is on Ethereum and scaling it well and scaling it right. And, and just, just to, you know, to, to explain a little more about that. Um, also in the paper, we, we were less focused on EVM compatibility in, in the, in the class project that, you know, we mentioned that Ed was involved in, they were talking about building like regular programming languages on top of this, which is still something that would be super, super cool on top of Arbitrum. But because we're such believers in the Ethereum ecosystem, and we see that's where the mindshare is, that's where the developers are, that's where we think the future of smart contract is, is on Ethereum. So we went very, very, very deep in the company days of how do we become the most EVM compatible uh, scaling layer. And, and that's what we are. If, you, if your code runs on Ethereum, if it compiles on Ethereum, it will compile on Arbitrum. Uh, there actually is no compiler. It's the same bytecode. So it'll run on Arbitrum. Yeah. Got it. So as you guys were explaining, right, going through the various levels and kind of building upon your explanation of what exactly Arbitrum is, you kind of repeated the words dispute resolution, right? And then there's the words incentive mechanisms. And I feel like this has a lot to do with game theory. So I'm just just curious, like how much of computer science, your dominant field, right? How much of that is about understanding game theory and how does that benefit the design process of yeah. a roll-up solution, right? Because not, I, I don't think every team kind of comes from a deeply rooted academic background. I think spending a lot of time coming from this angle of understanding game theory probably does help, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and game theory is plays an important role in, in a bunch of areas of computer science. It's something that we've taken into account in designing the system. Um, but um, it's, I think it's important to say in Arbitrum that we don't rely on game theory for the correctness of the outcome. We, we give an unconditional, we give a guarantee of correctness, assuming only that some one honest party is participating in the system. If anybody is being honest, they can force the system to behave correctly, regardless of incentives or whatever anyone else does. Where the game theory comes in is around efficiency, that our protocol operates efficiently because, of, because there are incentives for people to behave in ways that will allow it to behave efficiently. So if somebody behaves contrary to their incentives, we still get the right answer, mm. but the system operates less efficiently we don't think that's a big problem because the party who is misbehaving will lose their stake. And it's that stake that ultimately pays for the extra, the extra costs. So that's kind of the vision, right? Correctness 
Absolutely. Um, efficiency because of game theory. And when there's inefficiency, the, the bad actors pay for it. But you're right, that, that does mean that game theory is part of the discussion. Um, and it was really important for us to make sure that, that, that we didn't bleed over into a situation where correctness of the protocol depended on game theory. That's a thing we wanted very much to avoid and, and did. One way I started learning about Arbitrum as I was kind of reading through various things is actually through your posts, um, Ed, that you write on Medium. And there's a whole list. So I really do encourage our listeners to go and, and check that out because he does write about a whole ton more than just about Arbitrum. In some of these posts, you talk about blockchain design and you wrote about um, something called the assert challenge design problem, which you've kind of alluded to in your responses already. Um, but could you just re reiterate, right? What, what is this challenge specifically between which parties of people, right, involved mm -hmm. um, and why it exists, I guess, in the first place, kind of going back to yeah. the fundamental question. Sure. So let me tell you a story about something that could happen on an Arbitrum chain if somebody's badly behaved, right? So you have a chain that's operating and you with two parties, we'll call them Alice and Bob, who are participating in that chain as validators. That means they're watching the chain, they're checking um, what the correct behavior of the chain is, and um, um, and um, they will um, uh, and they're taking action to enforce the correct behavior if they see a problem, right? So let's imagine. So the assert challenge, basically, idea or paradigm here is that somebody, let's say in this case it's Alice, posts a claim about what the correct result of executing the next so much, so and so many transactions will be, right? She posts that claim and then there's a challenge period in which anyone, everyone can check that. And if they disagree, they can uh, issue a challenge. Um, and if no one issues a challenge, then, and, and that whole challenge period expires with no challenge being issued by anybody, then the system will accept Alice's claim. Right? And this is the common case. Alice makes a claim that is truthful um, and nobody challenges it because if they challenge, they're going to lose their stake and you know, people don't want to lose their stake. Right? So in the common case, you just execute this way. But suppose that Bob decides to challenge Alice's, um, Alice's claim. So Bob posts a different claim. Bob says, I challenge Alice's claim and here's what I think the correct result of that execution would be. Right, and now Alice and Bob are in what we call a challenge. Um, and basically, um, this is a procedure. Uh, you can think of it almost as a game with Alice and Bob as the players and with the referee that is an Ethereum contract. And so the referee enforces the rules of this challenge procedure. And the guarantee that the Arbitrum tech gives you is that because is that the party who's wrong, if Alice is, if Alice is lying, um, but Bob is telling the truth, then Bob can win the challenge and, and vice versa. The party who's telling the truth can always win the challenge. So the way the challenge works roughly is um, imagine that Alice made a claim about a, a million steps of execution. She said that this, that the chain can execute a million steps of computation and the result is whatever it is. Um, and so now we tell Alice, okay, uh, and, but Bob disagrees. He says, no, after a million steps, there'd be some other result. Now we tell Alice, okay, take your claim about a million steps 
and tell us um, and, and pick 100 points sort of evenly spaced through that execution and tell us what the state is at each of those points. And now, Bob, you tell us what is the first one of those you disagree with, right? And now Bob identifies one that he disagrees with. And now, now if you think about it, Alice and Bob are now disagreeing about what happened between one of Alice's checkpoints where they both agree and then the next one where they disagree. So if Alice started out with a million step claim, she breaks it up into a hundred claims that are each 10,000 steps, one one hundredth is big. And now after we've done this procedure where Alice breaks her claim, big claim into small ones and then Bob says, I disagree with that one. Now we have a disagreement about 10,000 steps. And now we do it again, right? And each time a party has to break their larger claim into a hundred smaller claims that are one one hundredth as big. And then the other party picks one of those that they say, no, that one is wrong. So you can very quickly, if it's a million step claim after three rounds of this, you've gotten down to a disagreement about one step, like one very simple machine instruction. And then it's easy for the referee to do this. So the referee's job is just to say, okay, Alice, give me a hundred claims. Okay, Bob, identify one of them and then give me a hundred claims uh, to break that. Um, the referee just kind of points to the players and makes sure that they move when they're supposed to. And then at the very end, the referee just has to look at one step of computation. So the referee's job is really cheap, but it is resolved. Um, and the, the, the parties who are in the dispute do the work. And, you know, and, you know, we then unload a bunch of, we, we then have a proof based on, you know, a whole bunch of computer science that says that this procedure guarantees that if Alice or Bob is correct in the beginning, that they can win the challenge. So a party who's correct can always win. A party who's correct can always get their way and force the system to accept their result. And so that's the guarantee ultimately that we give. Any one party who is telling the truth will force the chain to accept their, uh, that true outcome. And even if there are a thousand people who are lying, who are sort of on the other side, um, the, the, the truth teller will win. And so that's a very strong guarantee of correctness. But it's based on this idea of making an assertion. And then if someone disagrees, you just have to resolve the dispute between them. Right. So two things to say about how this operates in practice. One is disputes are incredibly rare because, the, because someone is lying and it's going to cost them a lot. And they know they're lying. Um, and so um, people aren't going to do that in practice. Um, so that doesn't happen in practice. But if it does happen, the system is guaranteed to get, to get the right result anyway. That, that's basically the picture. And uh, I know I went a little bit deep in, uh, in this description, but I mean, it gives a flavor, I think, of like the sort of stuff that goes on. But the beauty of all of this, just to zoom out um, a lot, is that this stuff happens sort of in the engine room of the Arbitrum protocol. If you're a developer or you're a user, you don't have to worry about this stuff. Um, what you do is you connect to an Arbitrum node, just like you'd connect to an Ethereum node, and you send it the very same um, kinds of queries or requests or code that you would send to an Ethereum node. So like this complexity as it is, is internal to the system. And the, um, the sort of storefront that this puts up for users and developers um, is highly compatible with Ethereum. So like one piece of advanced computer science we did is 
figuring out how to guarantee correctness at low cost. And then the other piece of, I think, uh, engineering that I'm pretty proud of for our team is to then uh, build on top of this something that provides a very high level of compatibility with Ethereum. So you get the advantage, the efficiency advantages of the advanced computer science that's going on, but you don't have to rewrite everything because it looks and feels just like Ethereum, only cheaper. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Because one of the questions that was floating around in my head for a while was, I mean, does all of this computation become really intensive and therefore costly to do? But what you're saying is it does, it doesn't offload to the main chain, basically the, the layer one chain that is Ethereum. Yeah. Um, right. So right. that's the off chain. Yeah. So the copy split that you were talking about. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. The, the computation that goes on, the computation that contracts do and the storage that contracts do um, basically never has to go to the main chain. Um, if there's a dispute, it just the dispute ends up looking at just a tiny little sort of uh, uh, looking through a tiny little keyhole at just like one little piece of the uh, computation or the, or the storage uh, because of this procedure of narrowing down the dispute. So, and this has huge advantages. It means that we don't have to live that Arbitrum contracts don't have to be um, uh, subjected to the contract size limits or the gas limits that exist on Ethereum, which are uncomfortably tight for developers in practice. So Arbitrum has much higher um, limits on, uh, on how much computation you can do, how big your contract can be and so on, because we never have to move the contracts to back to the main chain. And there are two parts of the story, by the way. So there's a story today, which is like, if you are an Ethereum developer that has built something on Ethereum, it will work on Arbitrum. That's story number one. And that's really exciting. But I think moving into the future, the story becomes, if you're an Arbitrum native developer, you can actually build your things in ways that utilize these, these capabilities and ways to build things that you couldn't even do in Ethereum. And that, what I mean by that is, so... You have uh, contracts size limits that are larger than Ethereum. You have transactions that are larger than you can do in Ethereum. You have faster Oracle updates. So step number one, which I think was where most people are today is, hey, we can move over to Arbitrum within minutes. And then that's like really, really important. And I think the next wave will be, it was like, wait, and what are the, you know, so everything that we did in Ethereum works in Arbitrum and it's great, but what are the next things we can do? What can we do that's, that we couldn't do in Ethereum? And that's a frontier, you know, we saw some projects in the recent ETH Global Hackathon that were exploring that frontier, but that's really, really like, I think the next thing and, and, and pretty, pretty early days for that now. And, and we're constantly also adding features to this, like VLS signatures is something that we have supported in, in our, in our, in our, in our OS and we'll be exposing, uh, you know, hopefully with wallet providers, we'll be exposing that to users as well. And lots of things that we could, we've added nice like goodies to, to, uh, to Arbitrum, things that are uh, improvements to the Ethereum experience as well. So step number one is it's no worse. Everything works. And step number two is, wow, what are these new things that we can do here? Many of our listeners are end users like me. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there are probably two questions that people are thinking right now. One is more on the security side. So are there any security compromises, right, between uh, the Arbitrum rollup and the layer one blockchain, for example, Ethereum? Um, and the other question is very broad. What is the impact of Arbitrum on end users, right? I'm not a developer. I'm not interacting yeah. with mainnet. Um, I'm waiting for stuff to be built so that I can experience all of the advantages that you guys have mentioned, right? So how does it flow down to me practically? Yeah. 
So let me take that second one first. Right now, the biggest advantage you see is that the fees are much lower. Um, right, the, the transaction fees, the gas you have to pay is you know, order of magnitude lower, say, uh, for in a lot of use cases. Um, so you get that right away. Um, if someone just takes an existing Ethereum application that you like to use uh, and moves it over, uh, that's really the benefit right away. But then over time, um, what you can get, the, uh, the, the other thing that will happen as more users come on board is you, you can have larger scale. You can have more users interacting with the same um, applications. And that has advantages in terms of the efficiency of the markets that those uh, applications are building and so on, right? Um, um, and then as, as, the as the capabilities of Arbitrum continue to grow beyond Ethereum, you're going to see new classes of applications that are not practical in Ethereum that, uh, that come along. Um, so really we're excited about not just um, having a way of taking existing applications, but opening up whole new categories of applications that would be too expensive or that would go beyond the gas limit or the contract size limit or something like that on Ethereum. So whole new things that just don't exist today. And the other thing to add to that about users will feel is the fast response, the low latency. So no more of like yeah. waiting for MetaMask to, you know, reload and, you know, just spinning wheels. Yeah. It'll be nice and fast. And, 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 and two things here. Yeah. From a user experience, and those are the big things. You'll pay less money. You'll get a nice, faster experience. And I think those are the things that users care about uh, probably most. But the other things users care about, uh, at least users that I speak with, is will there be a vibrant ecosystem? And that's where the developer advantages matter, right? Users want all the same apps that are on Ethereum. Uh, on Arbitrum. And because composability breaks between layer one, layer two, synchronous composability, you really want to know that the ecosystem will, will be there. And, and that's why the developer advantage matters, right? So if, if, if it's easy to develop here, if it's porting is easy and you don't have to uh, rewrite your code, so you can do, you know, like we saw, on, on, uh, we saw play out last week, uh, governance proposals, and within a week or two, the team has already built on Arbitrum. And that, that's, I think, going to be, uh, you know, where the developer advantages turn into user advantages, because it's going to help really bootstrap the ecosystem, because the switching cost is really just, just quite low. I don't want to leave out the security part of your question. Um, so when it comes to security, the most important thing to understand about Arbitrum is that its security is rooted in the security of Ethereum. That is, the Arbitrum system is governed by, by a set of contracts, which I often sort of compare to a referee. Its security is rooted in the security of Ethereum. And so then because we have this uh, roll-up protocol that gives this very strong guarantee that any one party who's paying attention can force correct execution, um, you'd really just meet, need to, meet, to make that very weak additional assumption that somebody who's paying attention to the chain is going to behave honestly. Um, and we think that's, that's pretty much a given. And we, as part of building toward the, uh, part of building out our mainnet deployment are working, uh, are working to, uh, to line up uh, sets of parties who will promise to, uh, to participate. You know, we, we feel that's, that's a really an excellent security posture. So we do, you don't have to move to a fundamentally weaker security model in order to get these advantages. Your security is really anchored in, in Ethereum security. Mm -hmm. And then going forward, whatever other blockchain that you guys would also support as well. Obviously, right. If we build, if we build in the future on top of a different chain, right, then we would be rooted in the security of that chain, whatever that mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excellent. Well, Thank you so much for really breaking down a lot of the bigger concepts that I feel like are making a comeback from 2018, right? Scalability and now layer two is really playing out not only in theory, 
but an application. In the last couple minutes here, I'm just going to leave it open to you guys. Is there anything that we haven't covered in our conversation that our listeners should know about, right? Of course, there are a bunch of technical details, which uh, I'll make sure to put in the show notes, uh, all of the previous podcasts hmm. that you guys uh, have already been on, done great breakdowns for, but anything on the higher level, you know, that our, our listeners should really take note of. Yeah, I mean, there are there are a few things. One is uh, Arbitrum is scaling Ethereum is really bigger than our team, bigger than anyone. It's a collaborative process, and so uh, there's there's really space for everyone to get involved. Uh, it's it's us. It's the teams building with us. Uh, it's people that, uh, contributing the community. Uh, so really, users should uh, users developers that are, should really really uh, feel you know join our community. Uh, join really, you know, become part of the Ethereum community, right? Where we, we view ourselves as really an extension of the Ethereum community and and help contribute. And and you know, we can't do this ourselves uh, by by any means. Uh, we need the, you know the the entire community support. And um, for excited excited uh, listeners, there are definitely ways to get involved. Yeah, and the the other thing I would say is that we focused a lot on the tech here, but just to reiterate the point that from a usability perspective, if you use Ethereum today as a user. You will be able to use Arbitrum with exactly the same tools, the same wallets, the same uh, whatever front 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 facing tools you use. With your if you're a user, if you're a developer, what we're doing is putting an effort an effort in to make those tools available. The same wallet, the same block explorer. We'll have Etherscan on board. Uh, if you use uh, like Gnosis Safe, we'll have them. They're they're building on us. Really, our goal is to replicate the experience so nothing changes uh, for users. But but as I mentioned earlier, we also have the ability in layer two to to innovate and say. We can recreate the exact experience on on layer two on la- uh, on layer two as we had on layer one. We can also do more things. So really, it's user feedback of what features are not in Arbitrum today that you want. You know, help help us steer this ship basically. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen and Ed, for hopping on Crypto Unstacked and sharing your insights with us. I'm really excited to see where the project is headed in the future. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. It's been great. And, you know, we look forward to further dialogue to your listeners and viewers. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Really, really great to be here. And thanks for everyone for listening. And like I said, please do get involved. Reach out to us. If you're a developer, if you're an educator, if you're just a project that wants to build alongside us, it's not about us. It's about the Ethereum community. We're looking to scale together and we can use all the help we can get. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.